is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Three British soldiers are dead in Afghanistan at the start of the Taliban's spring fighting season. We think it was just a very large um, IED um, and uh, the terrorists, uh, Taliban, got lucky. Why Camp Delta in Guantanamo Bay is giving President Obama a headache and 200 veterans of the Korean War return to the battlefields 60 years on. Earlier this week, three British soldiers were killed in Afghanistan when the vehicle they were travelling in was hit by an IED. It's the first time British soldiers have been killed while travelling in a Mastiff armoured vehicle, which is well known for the high level of protection it provides for those inside. BFBS reporter James Hurst is in Camp Bastion. Hello James, tell us what happened exactly. Well, as you said, it was an IED blast, an improvised bomb, which hit this Mastiff vehicle on Monday. But I think what appears to have happened, given the consequences, is that it was a very big IED. Now, this happened on a road called Route 611 in the Nuri Siraj district of central Helmand. And by all accounts, a pretty well-travelled route. It was, we're told, a relatively routine journey for these vehicles and troops. The three men who died as a result of the blast were airlifted to the hospital here at Camp Bastion, but they could not be saved. We also understand that there were six other British troops injured who are being treated uh, as a result of this blast. Now, uh, two Scots, they were all serving here with two Scots, uh, and two Scots are running the PMAG, the Police Mentoring and Advisory Group. It's a key piece of work as the Afghan forces take the lead for their country's security and international forces, including the British, step back to a supporting role. The PMAG is centrepiece of that supporting work, but this sadly illustrates that support role is not without its dangers. What more can you tell us about these soldiers? Well, Corporal William Savage and Fusilier Samuel Flint were both from 2nd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland, the Royal Highland Fusiliers, and Private Robert Hetherington was from 7th Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland. Now, uh, Corporal Savage had completed a tour of Iraq and two previous tours of Afghanistan after joining the Army in 2003. An experienced soldier, his wife Lindsay, who is expecting their first child, paid tribute, saying that she knows his life will live on through so many amazing memories that they shared together. Fusilier Samuel Flint was on his first operational tour a year and a half since joining the army. His family say everyone should know that Sam loved his job and made his whole family and everyone that knew him proud. And Private Robert Hetherington, he joined the Territorial Army in 2006. He was mobilised with two Scots last year to deploy with them to Afghanistan. They all arrived in the last few weeks. He has been called a gifted soldier with a genuine natural talent. His commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Lindsay, said he epitomised everything that is excellent about the reserve forces. And James, what is the mood like there? Well, I was actually at main operating base Price in Nari Siraj on Monday, the headquarters for the area where this happened. I think subdued would be the right word that evening. Yesterday, back in Camp Mastian, you saw flags at half-mast, but people were getting on with life and, perhaps more importantly, work. It is felt most keenly, of course, by those in the same regiment or, or who work side by side. Each person, I think, deals with it in their own way, but they really do pick up and get on. Some say they are stronger and more determined for it. James, you've travelled in a Mastiff vehicle. What are they like? 
In fact, I, I travelled in one yesterday, less than 24 hours after this incident, and there was no sense from the people I was travelling with of any undue concern about the safety of this vehicle. We went through the same brief safety briefing I've had before. Everyone was really focused on getting in and getting on with the journey the same way they always do. And today, uh, you know, we've had uh, several people restating their faith in the vehicle. Uh, the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir David Richards, speaking at the unveiling of a memorial in the UK, talked of the shock that the attack and these losses have caused. Everyone rather assumed that, you know, whatever else, Mastiff would be OK. Um, we think it was just a very large um, IED um, and uh, the terrorists, uh, Taliban, got lucky. Uh, but we'll look at this very, very carefully, as the Prime Minister has just said. Um, and I, I think it's... Um, Part of a declining curve. We've been very fortunate uh, in the last um, six months or so. Uh, but we've got to go into it, as we will, as good professional soldiers, sailors and airmen, with our eyes wide open. Um, and um, in the meanwhile, we're doing a fantastic job over there, and I know that'll go on. Now, Mastiffs cope not only with the heavy terrain, they have in many occasions before coped with blasts here. And back in 2009, I met a soldier who was suffering from a sprained ankle. When I asked him what it was, he'd actually been in a Mastiff that was hit by an IED. And in roughly these words, actually stronger words, he said, if something bad is going to happen, then make sure you are in a Mastiff. I really don't get a sense that Monday's painful events have shaken people's confidence in this vehicle Nobody ever thought it was invulnerable, but they had perhaps hoped that its limits might never be tested like this. All right, James Hurst and Cam Bastian, thanks for joining us. So the Taliban have begun their spring offensive. With me, as always, is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and we're also joined by Middle East analyst, Hajir Tamourian. Hello to both of you. Uh, Hajir, what can we expect from the Taliban this summer? Well, I think probably because there's the possibility of peace, they will try to impress upon the other side that they are still a force. They are still, of course, a force in parts of Afghanistan, but there is also great progress, in my opinion, made by in the training and the determination of the Afghan army. So more of the same, I suppose. Christopher Lee, we heard the chief of the defence staff saying there there hadn't been as much violence in the last six months. I suppose that was to be expected, though, wasn't it? It never is during this sort of uh, period. I mean, I don't mean it's like a medieval army or warfare that you, you knock off during the winter because there have been casualties. And don't forget, when we talk about casualties with great sort of compassion and respect to uh, people in in the services, uh, we talk in terms of numbers, quite small numbers. Something we talk in should be talking of success in the past twelve months of Taliban terrorist groups of killing something uh, of Afghans, both army and civilians. We talk in terms of thousands, and so that is the difference. The other thing, I mean, I slightly take issue with Hajir for once. And that is that when, you know, we do talk about peace coming, but I don't, do not confuse peace with withdrawal, because withdrawal does not mean peace, it just means getting out. Hajir, um, I agree. why is the Taliban so powerful some ten or so years on in both Afghanistan and Pakistan? I suppose we must go back to Pakistan next door. Uh, uh, last year, for example, they they arrested a lot of Taliban leaders who wanted to talk to Kabul to talk to peace about the government, and uh, they they uh, uh, this is the army, not the politicians. And uh, later on, they had a change of mind, and they when they were releasing these Taliban leaders, they were ma they make them swear that they would pursue peace talks. So. Um, uh, 
as usual, everybody is, is divided. For example, the State Department is pursuing t- uh, peace talks with the Taliban settlement, and many Taliban are tired of years and years of fighting, losing a lot of people. And at the same time, the military, the American military in uh, Afghanistan have not been um, at all sure. Uh, so, um, yes, maybe you, you might say the Pakistani army has changed its tune about peace because they want to see the back of NATO as soon as possible so that they can turn Afghanistan to a safe place in their strategic calculations against India. Um, uh, a lot is happening and a lot is not happening, I'm afraid. But there has been enormous progress and that makes me hopeful and admiring of the job that Western armies have done. For example, 12 years ago, uh, when the Western forces went in, music was banned. Now there's a huge, massive, thriving music industry in Afghanistan. Thousands of girls' schools are thriving. The entertainment industry, publishing, for example, as we speak, there's a very popular book fair in Kabul, etc. There's yes. a lot going on. Chris, just to bring it back to this, inc- this terrible incident this week, h- hitting an armoured vehicle of that kind is, of course, a shock because it's the most or considered the safest vehicle. Are the Taliban tactics changing? Are they likely to change during this season? The uh, general said, it was interesting, general said they got lucky. I mean, Taliban, every, all armies get lucky. I mean, Napoleon said the best general to have was a lucky one. You know, so that that, that is true. But so it wouldn't, that be, was it wouldn't a big have been. Bang. It wouldn't uh, have been targeted because of the kind of vehicle it was. Yeah, they put a bit. You know, they put a bigger explosive, knowing that it, it, it's on a track. There's a regular track. Do you remember James Hurst was saying this is a regular route, well-trodden route, and so they put a bigger explosive there. And the uh, you know that particular vehicle is very very good, and it's very good because there is a particular sort of boat type shape underneath, and it sort of deflects the blast. But it is still vulnerable. You're still vulnerable to a big, uh, a big bang. The other thing to remember is that, I mean, you were saying to Hershey, you know, why are they sort of still around after 10 years? Um, and that is because they will always be still around. It's, this is asymmetric warfare. This is guerrilla warfare. And it's great to hear that lots of music and dancing and, and girls going to school, etc. You can turn that round when the last ISAF soldier walks out and the first Taliban agreement comes to a deal with mm-hmm. Kabul, you can turn that whole thing round in a month. It's possible, of course, Christopher, that uh, the Taliban might be given the Pashtun areas of the southeast of Afghanistan, the other peoples of Afghanistan who have never seen eye to eye, who have had the same identity as the Taliban, the Pashtuns. They are becoming more and more confident in Indeed. thinking also that Afghanistan is their country. Remember that when the Taliban were the government of Afghanistan, they never captured the whole of the country. The north east remained in the hands of the Northern Alliance. But if you're going to rule Afghanistan, Hoshia, you know Jalabar. Well, you've got to be a Pashtun anyway. Let's just uh, mention an important date because it's two years since Osama bin Laden was killed. Hajir, how powerful is Al-Qaeda? I think Al-Qaeda is now a name. Um, some ceremonial chief hiding in Pakistan uh, in, the, in the shape of Ayman al-Zawahiri and people in North Africa, Yemen, ev- everywhere, Iraq, who um, are extremist uh, Muslims, Islamists against the West, against their own local government, borrow the name and say we are loyal to Al-Qaeda. I think Al-Qaeda hasn't got any control over these various groups, but the, the focus has turned, in my opinion, to North Africa, and these people are not in touch at all with uh, Al-Qaeda Central. 
All right, Hajit Tamourian, thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, could Syria be drawing its battle lines in cyberspace and UK veterans land in South Korea with war memories on their minds? GFBS Sit rep. This week, President Obama said again that Guantanamo Bay must close. By his own admission, the now infamous detention center, which incarcerates some of the world's most dangerous suspected extremists, has become a powerful tool for new recruits. And with more than 100 inmates on hunger strikes, some being forcibly kept alive, the jail is embroiled in a new crisis. Christopher, when he came into office in 2008, Barack Obama vowed to close Guantanamo. Why has he failed? Congress won't let him shut it down. Simple as that. And the reason for that is that the a lot of the intelligence people and the military say the guys in Guantanamo are dangerous. If you let them out, what are you going to do with them? You send them home, they'll start fighting again. But it's interesting, there are 166 inmates, prisoners in Guantanamo. And by the way, the irony, of course, is letting people remember that Guantanamo is on Cuba. Um, these There are 166 of them. Something like 90 to 100 have already been cleared as having no case to answer. They wouldn't be charged. And they're still there. They're still there. Now, and why they is can't that? Get because Congress says, but if you let them out, they will go back and they will join up and they will start fighting. Now, you see, Guantanamo uh, Camp Delta opened up as an interrogation centre uh, in 2002. Uh, some of those guys have been around for from the transition from almost teenage, late teenage, into the early years of middle age. Um, they have families at home. They are doing exactly what the British Army feared could happen with the internment of people in Northern Ireland. You create other people. You create a new family business. What do you think will be the next development? The next development is that, is, is that he, Obama, will go back to Congress... Do you think uh, he'll succeed in closing it? Uh, not at the moment. Not the way the Congress is, is thinking at the moment. And it's not just Congress. It, it, it's it's the split of Congresses within Senate Armed Services Committee, is the is the Defence Intelligence Committee. All the agencies are doing it, and they will turn around and said, "Mr. President, you cannot do this." And Mr. President cannot do this unless unless he gets that support. The other thing which is going to happen is that we are going to see the withdrawal 2014, 2015, and you've still got them. Is it, they're going to be there forever. That is the time that when you've basically sort of said, right, we are out from Afghanistan, you do exactly what you did in, Af in Iraq. You take all the baddies, or you think they're baddies, and you brought them back into the badlands and say, OK, you're off. Christopher, stay with us. Online activists have been one of the defining features of the Arab Spring, particularly in Syria, where they have played a crucial role in the struggle against President Assad. But now it seems the Syrian government is fighting back. In recent weeks, the self-styled Syrian electronic army has hacked Twitter accounts of some of the world's major news organisations, including the BBC and the Associated Press. Earlier on, I spoke to David Livingston, who's an associate fellow at Chatham House, specialising in cybersecurity. I asked him if he thought these attacks were damaging. Yeah, it's very, very sensitive. Uh, online activity that disrupts the normal 
messages of an enterprise um, is um, is a very easy way to attack the value of an organization. So things like, um, you know, if you always say, say sort of BP, when, you know, the chief executive of BP was seen not paying attention to the um, uh, paying attention to the crisis in the in the Gulf of Mexico with a Deepwater Horizon uh, accident. Um, the, the sort of messages trend on Twitter and other social networks overnight. The markets open all of a sudden and more points are wiped off the, the share value. So the, 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 the on, you know, online you know, hacking and activism uh, is, a way to get, is a way to get through to um, you know, damaging an enterprise, not just on the data and the intellectual property, but on reputation. And that's, that's, um, that's an interesting uh, way of... Uh, of, of damaging an adversary in, in situations like this. So tell us a little bit more about the Syrian Electronic Army, uh, what it's for and where it is. Well, this is the question. The one thing that is very, very difficult to establish with uh, these sort of attacks is the, what we call the attribution. Who actually, who actually carried it out? Um, who is the Syrian Electronic Army? Well, it says it's a group of enthusiastic Syrian youths who are supporting, uh, you know, President Assad and the and the, uh, the the current regime in in Syria. But it could be absolutely any anyone. It could actually be part of the Syri you know, the Syrian government machinery, part of their security and intelligence setup. Uh, you know, who've got the skills to do the sort of the hacking and so on. Or it could even be another group, who, or you know, or even one person who just wants to make trouble and publicize their cause by creating this sort of splash on the international stage. Yes, I've hacked uh, into Twitter or, the, or BBC or the or Associated Press uh, or whatever. And the trouble is you don't know where the attack has been mounted from. This is how the internet works through all of those switches and connections. So it, it could be um, it could be carried out by absolutely anyone and anywhere in the world, actually drilling back down to who um, to, to those um, questions is actually very difficult indeed. In 2010, Britain in the SDSR announced £650 million for cybersecurity. What progress has been made? Well, there has been a recent report by the UK National Audit Office about how the money has been spent and where capability has been, uh, has been uh, ramped up. Um, a lot of, the, a lot of the, uh, the money so far has gone into uh, developing very specialist capability inside the security and intelligence services in the UK, and probably quite rightly so. Some of these national-level challenges are extremely complex and require very, very specific skills and capability and those don't come cheaply. In amongst all of that, how important is it for Britain as a government to have an offensive capability when it comes to cyber capabilities? Well, offensive capability is always very different. First thing is, is to actually define it. Um, should it be inside the uh, inside the general response of the um, of the United Kingdom? Well, I think that's for the for the government to work out uh, whether um, uh, you know how it actually uh, coordinates with other foreign policy and security objectives. How it works with the classic battle spaces of land, sea, air, and and outer space as well. The electronic domain is is a um, you know very very complex area, but it, there it. it having an offensive capability um, 
uh, is is also quite difficult to manage because, of course, if you are attacking in, in a so-called cyber war, and I think there's a lot of work to be done on defining what that actually is, you've still got this problem of attribution, you know, who actually fired a cyber weapon at you and how you should respond in kind. And there still aren't the laws, things like the um, uh, laws of armed conflict have still got to be developed to be looking to look at specifically cyberspace. So what is what are the sort of the concepts of proportional response? What are the concepts of deterrence and so on? Um, so offensive capability in amongst, yes, in amongst the other sort of classic forms of warfare uh, is, is, uh, is um, inevitable and, and uh, it is something that has to be done. How it works uh, is, is there's probably some more mechanics actually to, to work through, just so that everyone understands um, how offensive capability will be used and there will be no misunderstandings on the international stage which may lead to an escalation of conflict rather than uh, something that will actually you know, help reduce it by uh, you know, helping uh, neutralise an enemy threat. David Livingston, who is a cyber security expert at Chatham House, talking to me earlier. Christopher, what does the fact that Assad is now fighting back on the cyber front tell us about the war, assuming he is actually doing that? Well, let's assume that somebody's, he's either doing it or somebody's doing it on his behalf here. Um, this is modern warfare. What we've seen as the new generation of warfare, we saw it in its most benign uh, thing two years ago in Tahrir Square in Egypt. In some ways, the Arab Spring couldn't have worked without this sort of, not cyber warfare, but cyber come and join the party type of warfare. And that was warfare against the Egyptian government, if you think about it. And it was done with things that you could use all the time, like Facebook, like uh, tweeting or whatever. It is also uh, a most important thing, and I think the Assad lot have actually got down to it, um, they're rethinking some of their policies. For example, they're about to sort of uh, launch a new militia, which is like a, a bunch of reservists, but we're talking of 100,000 with a general in command, which will include a psi warfare uh, unit. And psyops is something which has been with us since the Middle Ages. Uh, certainly, yes, it has, since the Hundred Years' War, when... when because when it's about getting information. Uh, it's about and getting information, war. and it's about winding people up as well. I mean, when Joan of Arc walked around the, 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 the castle keep of, of Orléans, what she was doing was scaring the, the, the life out of the people that were on the inside, or the Burgundians were, who did the walking for her. Anyway, <laughs> that's not the point. It, it, what is the point is that it is a big mood swinger. So, for example, if, if you start to get this cyber warfare and then you get another country sort of takes notice of it, and it says... When this goes to the United Nations Security Council, which I'm sitting on as an ad hoc member, I might change my vote. I might vote for Saddam or from, for Assad, for, for example. And I think we've got to remember we've always done this. You know, transition to war, in goes electronic countermeasures, you knock out the mobile telephone aerials, and you change the whole cyber warfare uh, game plan. That's the stage we've got now in Syria. Okay, Chris, so stay with us. This is BFBS. Sit rep. It's nearly 60 years since the end of the Korean War. The three-year conflict began in 1950 as a UN peacekeeping mission involving troops from 16 countries. Last week, 200 veterans revisited the battlefields where, in freezing conditions, they'd once faced a relentless Chinese enemy. BFBS reporter Fiona Weir travelled with them to remember the Forgotten War. 
Arriving at Incheon Airport in Seoul after a 10-hour flight from Heathrow is a far cry from the six-week journey the old soldiers made by sea 60 years ago. Now all in their late 80s, this was the start of an emotional trip down memory lane. All were returning to Korea for the first time to commemorate the role they had played in what has come to be known as the Forgotten War. Military attaché Brigadier Jacques LeMay. I can assure you that South Koreans have not forgotten and today just shows that they continue not to forget the bravery of these men. In the space of a week, the veterans and serving soldiers of the Royal Irish Regiment travelled from Seoul's National War Museum through the hills and valleys where they had taken on the might of the Chinese army 60 years ago to the demilitarised zone, which now separates the south from communist North Korea. Albert Morrow was among them. I'm amazed at this place. You wouldn't believe the way this place has gone forward. And not only that, they're still going forward. The The... the the high-rise flats, the, 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 the architecture, the, the, the people, the education here, they're very well educated. At the small town of Capillon, they stood shoulder to shoulder with American and Commonwealth veterans who had fought alongside them, reflecting on a war which had taken them far from home and cost the lives of more British servicemen in three years than the Falklands, Iraq and Afghanistan combined. But Scott Whiteman, the British ambassador, says their sacrifice was not in vain. For many of them, when they came here originally, it was a very strange country. They didn't really know where they were coming and they left it in a state of devastation. But having preserved the freedom and uh, uh, safety of people of South Korea. After 60-something years, this is tremendous country compared to where it was when we left it. <laughs> it means a lot to come back to see what the Korean people have done with the country. When we left, it was like a garbage dump. But now it's remarkable. It's uh, amazing what they've done with it. Every soldier who was killed during the Korean War is commemorated in the port city of Busan at the UN Cemetery, the only one of its kind in the world. It honours soldiers from 16 countries who lost their lives between 1950 and 53. We will remember them. Laying across at her father's grave was Elizabeth Farrell, who was just seven years old when her father, a member of the Royal Ulster Rifles, was killed. And coming to Korea has given her comfort. Very special day for me to come back. But to come back here, actually to come and be here, is for very, very... I'm very, very grateful. In the shadow of what has become known as Gloucester Hill stands the memorial to the British 29th Infantry Brigade who held key sections of the front line against the communist attack at Imjin River where the Gloucester Regiment was all but wiped out. Seeing Imjin again sparked memories of the ferociousness of the enemy for Albert Morrow. They came in hordes at times. They were just surging as, as they were falling, getting shot, the more were coming sort of thing, you know. There was much to be remembered and plenty of time to reflect for the veterans who were welcomed back as heroes. Fiona Weir for Sitrep in South Korea. Christopher, we've heard so much recently about tensions in the region, but why was this conflict that started it all, arguably, known as the Forgotten War? Well, Forgotten War, because in fact, people say, oh yeah, that was Korea. And, and, and the truth is, the war's still on in as much that it was a truce side, not uh, an armistice, not an agreement, not a, a treaty to end, end, end the war. Um, it's also something which marked itself very much in the British Army. Um, I mean, the Gloucesters that uh, Finn was men mentioning there at the Imjin River, Colonel Khan got a VC in that. 
uh, Montgomery wore two hat badges. He wore his regular staff officer's hat badge and he wore a Gloucester's uh, badge on, on, on the back. It also ended in 53 which was the great celebration of the new Elizabethans, you know, with, with Queen Elizabeth. Um, it'll not go away. July is formally, formally the end. Uh, and I think we're going to see an awful lot more of the memorial services then. Indeed. Uh, let's have a look forward to next week. What can we look out for? Well, first thing, I think, is that John Kerry, the United States Secretary of State, their foreign minister, he's going to uh, Russia. He's trying to persuade the Russians... Do not continue to support Assad in Syria. I don't think so he will succeed. There could be some movement on Syria. Well, I don't think he will succeed. The fact that he's trying to do it, um, where you might get the movement is their attitude in in the United Nations. But the next move from that is in June, when the G8 uh, people come to uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, and Putin would get his ear bent. We've also got Chilcott. Do you remember Chilcott report on what happened in, in Iraq? Indeed. Uh, and every t- every so often somebody says, where is Chilcott? And, and what's happened? Says, and has he brought out his findings yet? And no, it's still, no, it's still in the diplomatic w- uh, wardrobe. Uh, but there's likely to be an announcement saying, look, when it might come out. But the biggest thing and the saddest thing in some ways is on Monday. They're going to get ready Ark Royal, uh, the uh, aircraft carrier Ark Royal in Portsmouth, getting her ready. For She's going the twentieth, yeah, for the twentieth of May, and at thirteen hundred on twentieth May, she'll sail out through the heads in Portsmouth. Or she won't sail out; she'll be towed out, towed out. Mm. Going to be turn her into, I don't know, um, razor blades probably mm. in Turkey of all places. But there she and goes. And you'll be there It'll watching, will you, Christopher? I shall be there. Uh, Yes, I made a fool of myself in Ark Royal many years ago as a young... Oh, uh, do uh, tell. Uh, as a young This officer. may have to wait till next week. I don't know. Can you say it in ten seconds? Uh, no. But, I'm, <laughs> but let's put it this way. I'm still here, and I might not have been... You've outlived the Ark Royal, haven't you? Christopher, good to see you. Thanks for all our guests this week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Kate Jabot. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.